Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have another episode that Norman Horn and I joined on a different podcast, the Two Things You Shouldn't Talk About podcast. You can visit their website at thetwothings.org. We had a great conversation. It's actually on YouTube if you want to look it up so you can see our facial reactions. We have some funny visual jokes regarding our latest book, but you could also enjoy it just as much by listening here on our podcast. We hope you enjoy the conversation we had with Josh from the Two Things You Shouldn't Talk About podcast. Enjoy. So welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Two Things You Shouldn't Talk About podcast. So I've got two special guests this week. I'll let them introduce themselves in their own words. So let's go kind of my screen. It's top left is Doug Stewart. So do you want to introduce yourself, who you are and what you're all about? Yeah. So my name is Doug Stewart. I am in Pennsylvania in the United States. I am the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute and I am... Let's see. I do that. I'm also a film producer for like companies and stuff, not like movies or anything. So my job for the Libertarian Christian Institute is to make sure that we have a lot of content that satisfies our listeners, our readers, and basically in charge of making sure that we are equipping Christians to make the case for a free society. Um, mm-hmm. We do that with a, through a number of ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about here uh, as yeah. we go on. Absolutely. And what kind of started your involvement with with the Christian Libertarian Institute, did you start this organization or did you find yourself getting involved or tell us a little bit no, about that? Yeah, no. So Norman founded it by starting libertarianchristians.com back in late 2008. And I'll let him tell that story. Yeah. But I became involved or late 2009, early 2010. We became friends online through the content, through a mutual affection for the message of liberty. And we became friends at some point, let's see, it would have been 2015, libertarianchristians.com became a nonprofit, and I was sort of, he wrote me into being part of the board, and of course I wanted to be, but be involved more and more, and so the involvement just has kept growing, and it just is kind of something I love to do. So yeah, so it started off as me being a writer and contributor, and then we became, you know, sort of co-hosts as a podcast, mm-hmm. and then that kind of fell mostly on me for a while, and uh, so that's what I take on. Uh, as, that's probably one of the main things I do is mm. uh, make sure the podcast stays weekly. Yeah. So you're the the CEO. Um, what does your day to day life look like? You know, involvement with this organization. What are you? So you mentioned the podcast. Um, what else is your yeah. organization all about? Yeah, it's a lot of communication with the people that we want to reach. So it could be donors, although that's not necessarily daily, and it's often you know very involved in social media, connecting with the contributors that we have, the regular contributors that we have to our blog, connecting with podcast guests, touching base with Norman pretty much every day about major projects, uh, one of which is a new book we have coming out. And so it varies. My first response when you ask me what does my day-to-day look like, it's fending off my children. That's that's what the first <laughs> yeah. thought, which which I guess is the case any day it, you know, nowadays in 2020, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, everyone's uh, at home. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're good from home here. So that's the gist of what I do. Um, you know, it, it really more varies from month to month, depending on, you know, what season we're in. If we're in fundraising season, we're about to hit that because of the holidays, or mm-hmm. it's, you know, doing podcasts, things like that. It just varies each each month, really. Mm. Do you find this election season is busy at all for you guys? Do you guys work with the Libertarian Party or maybe Norman, if you want to jump in on this one, uh, you can talk a little bit about yourself, but are you guys working with that party or just sort of? That's good que- those are good mask. questions. And yeah, so why don't I, I'll just introduce myself and kind of yeah. dovetail straight into those sorts of issues. So my name is Norman Horn. I founded the Libertarian Christian Institute and, and libertarianchristians.com and I function as its president and also more or less kind of a the editor of content that's written in particular. Mm-hmm. But I set a lot of the agenda for what we're doing. And part of my function is being, you know, the president of the organization. And so communicating with the board, communicating with our advisors, and then, of course, being part of the daily operations along with Doug. 
Uh, and so that's how I function now. Um, mm-hmm. For the longest time, you know, it was basically, it was started as a labor of love, an opportunity to do something that I felt was very much missing in the libertarian community at the time, which was to synthesize or explain how Christian theology and libertarian theory comport together mm-hmm. in a way that we would say operates in that they're concordant in operation. And so, you know, that began in 2008 in the wake of the Obama uh, election, uh, the presidential election, and just grew tremendously uh, over the course of the following years. And uh, with the interactions that I had alongside folks like uh, Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty, and the, the relationships that I had been cultivating and working through, working with, uh, with places like the Mises Institute, the Cato Institute, the Independent Institute, the Foundation for Economic Education, I began to kind of realize that there was a real need for something more organized and comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And so hence why we took libertarianchristians.com and flat out turned it into the Libertarian Christian Institute in 2015. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, the way this kind of works here in the States at least is that if you're a nonprofit organization such as ourselves, there's a very limited amount of things that you will, are allowed to particularly do with actual political parties. And so we are not affiliated with the Libertarian Party, Mm -hmm. uh, even though we have plenty of people who are supporters who are involved in it. And even in the past, uh, you know, I have been involved in it at times. But we, we do not as an organization endorse the Libertarian Party because Libertarianism is not altogether comprised of what is in the Libertarian Party. It is a series of ideas based on non-aggression that is well beyond any singular party, or and which is why you can find people like Ron Paul or mm-hmm. uh, or certain others, even in the Republican Party, who uh, really do propound libertarian values in many respects. Mm-hmm. Now, we would, for instance, perhaps go a little farther than them in certain respects, and that's okay because we're all kind of in this together naturally. But uh, but that's that's really kind of the the state at which we have today, at least in how a nonprofit can operate, is that we're philosophical mm-hmm. and theologically based. So yeah. we are educators, not activists, in the same way that many other people would want to interact with state apparatus or something to that effect. Hmm. So this is a question, I guess, for both of you guys. Did you find that faith influenced your politics in this regard or that your politics was maybe not that it influenced your faith, but you saw them kind of more and more working side by side the more you explored? So which did libertarianism, did this idea did that naturally occur as a result of your biblical studies and theology and things like that, or was it they're more unrelated? So I'll, I'll begin with that. So for me, at least, there was an evolution that occurred really back when I began reading more in economics and political theory, really back in 2004, uh, and mm-hmm. things began to really kind of take shape as to what I was coming to believe as an adult and realizing that the things that I had priorly held about sort of conservatism and theology were not really conducive to being consistent. And so the more I studied, the more I realized that the strong arm of the state was a real problem for the church in a variety of different ways. Number one being that it often allowed for this kind of influx of politics influencing our theology rather than the other way around. And furthermore, that the way that we were acting as Christians did not actually promote the very things that we were saying that we wanted. And so in an effort to try and be more consistent in what I believed, as mm-hmm. well as actually promote something that like getting actual results from what I said that I wanted, I had to abandon conservatism. Mm. And as I grew in my own knowledge of these things, it became evident to me that not only was libertarianism better at getting essentially the the results that I was looking for, namely the promotion of human liberty, that it was also even more in line with Christian theology than anything else that was available. And so that was why I began to kind of promote this idea that libertarianism really is the most consistent way of thinking Mm -hmm. about politics from a Christian perspective. And so that was a major part of the impetus for starting libertarianchristians.com back in the day. And that became kind of the mantra, again, of LCI as as it evolved. Mm. Um, So do we let politics influence our theology? No, it's totally the other way around. Because ultimately, we are all, like, even though libertarianism is important to us, we have a prior commitment. And that is to our Lord and our Savior, the Mm -hmm. one King, King Jesus. And so if we believe in that, then that has to affect everything we do. The declaration 
of Jesus is Lord is a political statement. And the moment that we begin to try and put in other human rulers on top of that, then we are, in a sense, deflecting away God's rightful rule in so many ways. Hmm. So from your perspective then, just building on what you just said about rulers, would you advocate then for a system of government where there were no rulers as such that there was no one, no head of state or no even no, no state at all? What way would you see see this working out, you know, in relation to saying that Jesus is your one kind of king and, and ruler in that sense? Yeah, certainly what we oppose fundamentally is the institution of the state. The statism purports to set itself up in opposition to God in so many different ways because it takes upon itself essentially a monopolization of force. That is, it takes upon itself the right to use physical force and threats of force to get you to do what it wants. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a fine line to be drawn between the idea of that type of government that is Mm -hmm. on top of everything and has that level of control and the idea of governance that there are rules and things that happen and that we agree upon to follow. And Mm -hmm. just because we have governance, the idea that there are rules and we need to follow Mm -hmm. them and whatnot, we have church governments, if you will, and governance that I definitely have respect my elders and Mm -hmm. the authorities that are above me in that respect. That's a very different thing than the powers that be, the principalities that are described in the epistles and whatnot. Mm. And so that's really the difference here is that we would advocate against the idea of statism and thereby heads of state per se, while also simultaneously recognizing that in order to be well-organized together, we do recognize that institutions evolve and they have a form of of leadership within them. Mm -hmm. Rulers, well, let's say leaders do not need to be rulers. Right. And that's the difference here. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there and I want to come back definitely to some of that. Um, I just want to switch over here to Doug then. If you want to talk a little bit about, you know, your journey and and how you came to, to, you know, to see libertarianism with your faith. Yeah, I'll do that. So my my starting point is similar to Norman's. We both grew up in relatively conservative denominations and churches, and we had an affinity for things that in America we would consider conservative. And for me, my faith journey in my early 20s, after college, after sort of like, you know, I'd done the Bible college thing, and now I'm mm-hmm. sort of exploring, you know, some some things. And I'm starting to realize about my faith that if I'm going to say something like Jesus is Lord, like Norman said a few minutes ago, that that is something that is political and political in the like, not necessarily about electoral politics per se, but it's political Mm -hmm. as in it has something to say about how we relate to one another publicly as opposed to just privately. So when you say I'm declaring my allegiance to Jesus Christ, yes, that's a personal thing you're doing, but it's not merely a private matter. It is Mm -hmm. something that actually not only has implications politically, it also is making a political statement. And that's really weird for us to think about in our day because we kind of compartmentalize everything. We, you know, we compartmentalize science from history, from math, from politics, from faith, and especially faith and politics. We sort of, you know, have those two things that we definitely, you know, we don't talk about them together uh, separately, but we almost never talk about them together, right? I mean, so for me, I was starting to realize, oh, okay, so that what I say about care for the poor, the environment, all those different things makes a big difference. And as a Christian, I should care about those issues. Okay. So in America, at least, and I think this is pretty true in the West generally, when you start to look up and read Christians who are really, really into caring for the environment, their biblical hermeneutic and ethic is very different from what I grew up with. And I was like, this just doesn't seem right. And what made me realize is that I needed to kind of learn what sciences or what studies, what uh, fields, I should say, mm-hmm. um, tell us more about how we relate to one another. And there, there's two main fields that have to do with, you know, how people relate to one another, psychology and economics. My wife took the psychology part and I started studying a little bit of economics <laughs> and started thinking about this in, in a way that's like, oh, so there, there's just a lot to glean from economics. And what it does is it sort of chops down the hubris of man to say, well, we can just design whatever sort of world we want to live in. And it gives you sort of like, you know, some pause, right? So you, you have to have some humility. So from the, on the Christian angle of things, I'm like, all right, how does this actually affect what we want to do? Do minimum wage laws actually help the poor? Hmm. Well, 
the evidence is not so clear. It's not about our intentions to be like, oh, well, we'll just give them all a raise or whatever it might mm. be. Does having a particular policy actually yield the results that we want it to? We can want policies to abolish inequality, you know, if, if that's mm-hmm. something that you want to do, but does it really? Well, obviously it's more complicated. We can't run, you know, right. certain types of tests on it. And it is complicated, but the study and discipline of economics can help us sort of think through that. So to go back way to your earlier question about, you know, does my faith influence my politics? It's definitely that direction. Mm-hmm. Now, in the context that we live in as Christians, we're always going to be influenced by how we address the situation of the day based on the issues that arise. So the church has always sort of evolved in a way and not not in like a really wild way, although there's lots of denominations that will say all kinds of different things. But it's always, I guess, evolved and adapted to its context to meet the needs and challenges of the day. And so, you know, as Christians, it's part of our job to say things and preach the gospel in a way that reaches people in fresh ways. And Mm -hmm. that is clearly going to sound different in 21st century America or 21st century Western Mm -hmm. civilization than it does in, you know, like 280. So, yeah, I would say it's one way on Mm -hmm. that. So that's, that's kind of where I would go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different views on, I guess, the idea of the state and um, even people I've talked to, there's a lot of people that would consider themselves on the libertarian spectrum, but they would definitely believe in some form of maybe loose state or, you know, there's some people that there's a lot of different views, but it's quite interesting actually to hear both you guys opinions on, on the state being, you know, almost in conflict with Jesus position as, as ruler. So I guess the first question that arises from that is when people maybe hear that, you know, things like, for example, if you say the minimum wage fundamentally doesn't help people the way you might think it does, or things along those lines of maybe saying that government programs or government systems aren't necessarily serving people the way that you think they are. A lot of people kind of, they might sort of recoil a little bit and kind of think that you're having to go with these systems that are designed to help the poor and, you know, minimum mm-hmm. wage designed to help poor people. And how could you be so heartless to say, you know, this is helping so many people. Or <laughs> if you say, you know, equality laws that are, you know, anything, you could you could name kind of any part of the government really that, yeah. that is designed maybe with good intentions. But, you know, how do you then get around this idea that people think that it's in some way not compassionate or insensitive to maybe suggest these things are not as as good as they they may think because naturally people will think well they're there for a good reason so of course they are good so you know maybe norman if you could talk a little bit about that is that a stumbling block you find for some people or what would be your way of maybe convincing people or working around that point of view yeah it's a good question the first thing you kind of asked you're sort of referring to there is the way in which the ascribed policy actually has the result that is intended. And so what we learn from economic analysis is that a lot of these policies that are set forth in order to try and accomplish a specific goal, especially if it goes against what would be, I mean, essentially good economic theory, they not only will sometimes not have the intended effect, they can actually sometimes have the exact opposite effect. Mm. And the minimum wage is one of those that actually does have kind of the opposite effect of what is intended. The thought process is, oh, well, if we just raise the minimum wage, then we can bring people out of poverty. But the problem is that if you do that, you will crowd out people who do not have the capacity to work themselves into like their marginal revenue product, what they can command wage-wise on the free market they may not be able to get a job at all because suddenly if for instance you know suddenly the minimum wage goes up to 50 pounds an hour or something to that effect well suddenly the restaurant or, or the grocery store or whoever that was previously able to hire two people at 25 or something mm-hmm. to that effect now they are forced to only be able to hire one person in order to actually maintain profit margins at a reasonable rate. Or They're, two that, robots. Yeah. <laughs> that's the and, way things are going. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, what a entrepreneur is seeking to do is to allocate the capital resources that they have in order to derive some measure of profit from them at a risk. Now, what's great is that these entrepreneurs actually are taking on the risk in a way that does not get passed along to the wage earner in the same way. And in mm-hmm. fact, 
that's the whole point of these sort of employee-employer relationships there is that the employer is actually taking on risk in a way mm. that the employee does not. And that's actually a very underappreciated point by a lot of people, in, especially mm, in the yeah. government, who, who think that somehow that the exaction of labor is what is deriving value. And that is false. That is a mistaken part of economic theory. And it's something that even Adam Smith didn't quite get right. But that later on, the Austrian school did with the introduction of the subjective theory of value, that value is not derived by just the exaction of labor, but rather by what other people are willing to exchange for it. And therefore, Mm. that measurement is subjective. And so Mm. the entrepreneur is subjectively going out, making an assessment about what what is going on in the economy so that they can allocate resources in order to do something that derives profit. And they're going to do mm-hmm. that by trying to exchange with others. So they assess what people are going to be willing to pay for and what they want. Mm-hmm. Then they take on the risk of paying people in advance for the value that they can put forward through their own labor in order to try and do that. So in fact, by mandating an increase in the amount that it must be paid for that labor, you end up actually crowding out other people who may have otherwise been able to participate in that activity, but now cannot. Mm. So this makes people like teenagers, for instance, are not particularly employable in high-wage positions. So they don't have the opportunity to go learn how to work hard and do good things in order to better themselves in the process. It means that people who are not as well-skilled, immigrants, for instance, are not going to be able to as easily get jobs or whatnot. People who just are not very well-skilled will not be able to have the opportunity to improve themselves over time through low-paying necessarily positions. It's not a crime to not be paid at a CEO level. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way we all start off. We all start off down there. Yeah. By nature, these, uh, these relationships between people are voluntary. You know, when you think about it, say there's no minimum wage and someone was offering, I don't know, $3 an hour for you to work. There's nothing saying that you have to take that position. Therefore, right. sort of, you know, an employer will soon find out that no one wants to work at that rate. So therefore, they're yep. going to have to bump up the thing or else maybe rethink their whole business plan if, if yep. there's no way they can get people at that rate. So I guess people underestimate the fact that people have brains and are able to evaluate whether it's a good deal or a bad deal yeah. without, you know, whether there is a federal minimum wage or not or, a you know, a legal minimum wage. Yeah. 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 A good observation there. And in fact, we could we could derive from that on some level that the minimum wage is very paternalistic in nature. The government is basically saying, now you don't have the ability to go out and command the wages in your own way, mm. uh, either through negotiation or through your own betterment, self-betterment. And why should you, you know, not be able to go and, and do that? So in other words, the government's taking upon itself you know, in a paternalistic mm. role to force yeah. people to act in a way that they would prefer. Mm. Yeah, to be fair to the people who are like trying to be paternalistic, you know, because I agree with everything that Norman said. In their defense, what they'll say is like there's power differentials between employer and the loan person looking for a yeah. job. The problem is that, you know, let's go without a minimum wage for a second. And you said that $3 an hour. So let's just say that there are a bunch of people willing to work for $3 an hour. Well, that's not the employer setting the wage, that's the employees. Yeah. The other people, you know, let's say there's a job that I would like to get $6 an hour, but like everybody's only paying three, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not necessarily the employer's fault. It could be the fact that there's 16 other people or however many people are willing to take that job. So it's not that the employer is the villain here. If you want to call it a villain, I wouldn't want to do that, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just the first word that came to mind. It's not the employer is the villain. It's just that everybody else is involved in a way that says, ah, three bucks is all that this is going to affect. And on the flip side of that, let's say that the minimum wage, because here's the thing about minimum wage laws, they're actually, the minimum wage is actually lower than what the average wage in most states in the United States is anyway. And states have their own minimum wage laws. So the federal minimum mm-hmm. wage in the United States is actually much lower than most, than I think almost every state. But on the flip side of that, you don't have to rely on that lone, underprivileged, underempowered, or disenfranchised employee seeking a job because all of the other people that are skilled about as much as he or she is, then are also sort of bidding up the price. So it's not just that like, oh, please give me a nice job. I'd like six bucks an hour. Oh, sorry. I'm going to give you three. No, other people are bidding that up too. So it's not like they're just, they're not completely unempowered or I don't know what the word is. Well, there are other implications of even what happens when you take the minimum wage 
type of law to, to even a more extreme. I mean, how many people do you know who've taken unpaid internships yeah. in order to gain experience and command yeah. a higher wage later? Yeah, make the coffee and sweep the what? floor for a year. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And or for instance, you know, this doesn't happen as much in, in my field anymore, but you know, you may choose to essentially, you know, be an understudy to like an engineer or mm-hmm. uh, some yeah. type of tradesman in order to gain valuable experience that will then be leveraged later. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely done work as a consultant and whatnot that has never been paid mm. in order to both gain experience and gain their trust for bigger things down yeah, the right. road. Now, think about that for a second. If I'm able to do that, if that's okay for me to be able to do, why then should there be any minimum wage at all for other types of work? Now, if I can, so if I can choose to work for free and that's okay, why shouldn't somebody be able to choose to work for $3 an hour or $6 yeah. an hour or whatever? That's so what's that's, really strange. It's, it's actually okay. It's legal to work for free, but yeah. not to work for under well, a certain wage. I was just about to ask, is there no <laughs> waiver that you can sign to say, I waive my right to a minimum wage? Or is that's, that, uh, that's part of the reason think. why minimum wage laws are so, I mean, I'm speaking a little uh, tongue-in-cheek here, but that's why they're batently insane. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. uh, I'll, I'll forgive you that one. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> here, here's a natural question. I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but... Maybe it's a good time for me to ask. This is a question that I've been thinking about, um, seeing as you guys are on. So this uh, this whole conversation brings up the idea of unions and labor unions, trade unions. Something that I've kind of struggled with as thinking through libertarian politics and stuff is the idea that if trade unions and these kind of labor unions set the prices or say they kind of strong arm employers into, into wages, is that, does that provide some kind of conflict with this idea of kind of voluntarism and working kind of as as individuals or do you see any kind of issues with with unions kind of being a a mob in that regard only in the sense that they are leveraging the use of force against their employer there's nothing wrong with a group of workers deciding they're going to organize no yeah of course right so that's that's fine the question is are they going to then use their organization at that point, to try and exact some form of, of kind of retribution against person and property when they don't voluntarily get what they want. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in any given situation where you're trying to you know, negotiate a price, sometimes it's valuable to go in and do it together. Well, it's like, that's mm-hmm. okay, that's fine, that's yeah. fine. But when that group then says, okay, you're not allowed to work here and we're going to prevent you from working here unless you are part of our group, per mm-hmm. se, I mean, how would they be able to do that without actually physically forcing them away? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, well, there was that's huge, when it gets wrong. There was a huge problem. I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, British politics of the <laughs> kind of 70s and 80s, but there was obviously a huge issue in the Britain at that time with mm-hmm. the, it was like the coal miners and the steel unions and things like that kind of basically strong arming the government and the sort of wage rises and certain conditions yeah. and things like that. And the government kind of had to say, well, enough's enough. We can't do it anymore. My question would be that, you know, when I start to think about these things, then I start to think, you know, is a state needed to kind of bust these monopolies that, you know, say a union that has, you know, comprises nearly all of the the workforce of a particular business says, you need to give us $20 an hour from the cleaner to the CEO at least, or no one's coming into work tomorrow. Is what is a kind of libertarian and a, a voluntarist kind of solution to that problem? Doug, do you want to address that? Or I think I missed the question in there. You were describing. So, yeah, the question. I was, I, you know what was happening in my head? And I was, I was trying to picture <laughs> the situation in the 80s that you were describing. Oh, man. And, and then I missed the first part. No, so, it's, it's, it was a crazy situation. I mean, it's <laughs> Margaret Thatcher's kind of whole prime ministerial reign as such was, was kind of blighted by that. But um, really the question was, if unions have say they comprise nearly all of a particular organization's workforce or yeah. a particular business's workforce and they say they try to strong arm them and say no one's coming into your to work tomorrow unless you give them 25 dollars an yeah. hour no matter what their position is naturally that would lead me to think that the state might have a role to play in and busting that kind of a, a monopoly really on the workforce but is there yeah. is there a way to, to deal with that kind of say a business person you know it seems like there's a lot of force or a lot of power being held by what is, I mean, it's not exactly a state organization, but it's becoming, you know, a a strong kind of independent organization. Yeah, no, it gets kind of complicated when you have the state endorsing unions and then also the state also basically enforcing some level of property rights. So if a business owner has a property right to that property, 
but yet the government recognizes the union's ability to sort of use that property to protest. I mean, it can get really complicated. This might be a question above my pay grade with respect to like, how does this actually, you know, operate, you know, like, cause I don't actually know union laws and things. I mean, our, mm-hmm. the state that I live in is kind of a mixture, but none of the industries that I work with are, are unionized that mm. I'm aware of. Um, and so I haven't really had to, you know, kind of deal with that, but, your question reminds me of the fact that when, when we think through libertarianism and what we advocate for is that we advocate for stable property rights. Whereas there is a, there is a situation or there's a position that is, I own this and I can do with whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Okay. And obviously there's varying degrees of that. There's, you know, all kinds of, you know, ways in which communities handle, you know, what do you have the right to do and, and all of that. But when the state gets involved with someone else's ability to impinge upon your property rights, then obviously there becomes a problem. Norm, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I think the situation that you're describing has some really precarious components to it, Mm -hmm. right? Because on the one hand, you have kind of the threat on some level from the worker. And what they're doing is they're saying, all right, maybe we can't, if we can't negotiate, then we'll just bring somebody else in to Mm -hmm. try and even build greater force into it. And so this is a very dangerous trap to be in. On the one hand, you get, you know, once you bring the state into it, suddenly now you have, ooh, now the politicians are involved. And so now they can exact their own influence into the situation in different ways beyond just the possibility of being a possible third-party negotiator. Like if it's just just bringing in, you know, some, some group to arbitrate, that would be one thing. But when mm-hmm. you put the, the force of the state behind it, well, yeah. then that's another. Yeah. And the interesting unforeseen consequence, and I don't know why people don't see this very often, but okay, if it is possible to have the government force the employer to act in a particular way in this exchange, because what's going on here is an exchange, right? Mm-hmm. The employer is saying, I will give you money in order for you to go and work in this respect. And then the state is going to force the relationship from one way to the other. Well, what happens in the reverse? Nobody seems to worry about that. There's a a former presidential candidate in in, uh, in the conservative movement here in America named Barry Mm -hmm. Goldwater. He said, Mm -hmm. the government that is able to give you everything you want is the same that can take everything away. Right. And so imagine that the union, that instead of the government saying, all right, employer, you're going to be forced to pay more. Well, why can't they tell then the group of workers like, all right, guys, we're now going to force you to take less. Mm -hmm. And that never seems to be appreciated by the the union side is that the government that they're asking to get involved is the same government that can basically force them into a slave relationship. Mm. So I think it's a very problematic thing to basically get the government involved in these type of negotiation efforts. Because eventually they can all fall apart and go the other direction in a way that nobody wants to see. Yeah, it was a very sort of, I know we kind of went off on a tangent there, but it was just yeah. something, I guess, yesterday it came up. It's interesting. You know, it's seeing, seeing, <laughs> yeah. as we're seeing as we're on the topic, but I don't want to talk too much about specifics of, of that sort of thing sure. for now. Because that, that could, I mean, we could just probably talk forever about these peculiarities and particular situations. And it's very easy for me to get sucked into that kind of conversation because... You know, it's really the what ifs that that spend you know you spend most of your time on really with with you a know, lot of these political issues. You know, you know that, if only there was a resource. Yeah, yeah. it's funny you would. It's funny you would mention that because actually we have we actually do have a resource coming out that is meant to really help this, and so we'd be happy to talk about it for a little bit. Yeah, please a, do. So we have a new book that is coming out. It's going to be available on Amazon, and it's uh, we're self publishing it as the Libertarian Christian Institute Press. And it's called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And the, the title is meant to allude to even the, the idea of what is it we're doing when mm. we do theology? Yeah. The classic definition of theology is faith seeking understanding. Mm. And so what we are seeking to do even as LCI is to apply good theology into our political philosophy, thus right. faith seeking freedom. Mm. The book is all in a kind of a question and answer conversational format where we go through a lot of different topics from basic theology of the state and political theology to basic economic issues to basic ethics issues, answering them one by one in a very conversational flowing form that anybody can jump into anywhere and gain something out of. 
We'll try and put a link to that in the in the bio below for anyone that's interested. But is that uh, available now, or when is that coming out? It's available for pre-order. We are aiming for a November 10th launch, and it will be available on Kindle, and it is going to be a paperback. And hopefully by Christmas, if not soon into January, we will have an audiobook because it's yeah. def- it's under production right now. So we're we're definitely there. It should be available internationally. So for all your uh, UK mm-hmm. listeners, yeah. And right now, we have a pre-order set price for the Kindle edition. It's a special price. It will not be this way forever. Uh, and, and forgive me, I don't know the conversion, but it's 99 cents, which right. I don't know what that I mean, it was a buck. It's almost free. Just say it's almost free. Or 1.5 pounds. Yeah, a third of a coffee or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it's it's next to nothing. So we yeah. hope that you guys will, your, your <laughs> folks will pre-order and, and yeah. even if they're just curious a little mm. bit and yeah. uh, can get a little bit out of and pump up those numbers. We're already pre-order, like we're number one in the Christian wow. or a, what is it called? Uh, yeah, let me look here. It's a yeah. Christian religious studies, church and state. Yeah, so we're already yeah, number nice. one on Amazon. Woo, we did it. Awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I haven't read it yet, but I will recommend it freely. You know, to my, to my listeners, I'm sure it'll be a great read and, I think I'll be looking into it myself. So um, yeah, go ahead and check that out, guys. It should be in the down below in the in the description on YouTube, and we'll link to these guys' website and all that stuff as well. So that brings us sort of back to the topic of, like you said, theology and the scripture and Bible, yeah. and let's yeah. let's maybe talk a little bit about sort of where you guys see this idea of liberty in the Bible, because a lot of people come to a lot of different conclusions. You know, there's a lot of, even neocons can kind of see their side of things in the Bible. Communists in some ways can see their side of things in the Bible. Where do you guys see liberty all throughout this book? I don't know who wants to go first. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at it first here. So I think one of, the, one of the things that became very clear to me as I was studying the scriptures as a young adult was that I can't make the scriptures teach what I want it to teach. And in order to kind of not do that, because it's very easy to just, I mean, we can, I can pull a Bible off my shelf right up here and I can open up and I can, you know, find a page and I can have it. Oh, Hey, look, we need a minimum wage law. I mean, I can sort of jump to that conclusion and that's a ridiculous thing to do or say, but there are things in which we can read the scripture and sort of come to some conclusions, but it's all sort of predicated on the way in which we approach it. And one, one of the things earlier on in my life was that, having the scripture sort of speak into our lives can be really tricky, right? And so how we approach scripture is, you know, the number one reason why we come to all these different conclusions about Mm -hmm. certain things. So one thing that I see a lot of conservatives do, and even a lot of like left-leaning progressives, uh, Christians do, is that they want to use the scripture to sort of fulfill their agenda or sort of preconceived Mm -hmm. ideas about how politics should work. And one of the reasons it seems, and again, I can't say this is true for every person because they all come to their different conclusions differently, but it seems as though the reason for that is that they want to separate faith and politics as like separate spheres. That whole like, hey, my religion is my thing. Mm. And so I really, really value the Bible, but God really doesn't care about, you know, politics. God really cares about my relationship with God, my relationship with my family, you know, my spiritual development, winning, you know, people for Christ, all of that. And then there's this other thing over here that we call politics. And, oh, well, I bet God has something to say about that. So what does the Bible say? And what's Mm -hmm. weird is, is that our witness as Christians is also part of what God has to say. So I often will say this, God cares about how we relate to one another. And Mm -hmm. that is very clear throughout the scriptures. Yeah. God does not want us to be violent toward one another. God does not want us to oppress one another. There are, I mean, the Old Testament and especially the New Testament, it's very clear that the arrangements in which we find ourselves will flourish insofar as they are voluntary, insofar as they, to Americanize that, and I don't want to say this too strongly, but to Americanize it, insofar as governance represents what we the people are doing together, Mm -hmm. then it's probably more acceptable than what Norman said earlier, which is the state, which is this sort of more top-down, hey, there's these other people dictating what other people ought to do, can't do, should do, you know, parameters and all of that. When we were preparing the book, we came across a quote by Edmund Opitz, and and I'm going to sort of, I'm not going to remember verbatim here, but it's basically, (laughs) there is no such thing as government with a capital G. There are a few people who are over a whole bunch of other people. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And that's where an analysis of the state helps us see more clearly what the Bible is against when the Bible is against empire. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the more biblical term for what we call the state because governance insofar as, you know, like a homeowners association is a type of governance. Uh, right. We're not really against that. The idea of a governance becoming what is a state or an empire, which is basically an institution that has its own agenda, its own sort of manifest destiny to mm-hmm. subjugate other peoples and other other governments or other groups of people and other institutions under itself in order to prop itself up. Uh, mm-hmm. The Bible has a lot to say about what happens there. And so, you know, one of the primary texts that we get into is in, oh gosh, I'm going to miss the rabbit, Second Samuel, where... Mm-hmm. Um, no, 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 First Samuel. First Samuel. First Samuel. All right, sorry. First Samuel 8. Doggone it. Uh, first Samuel 8. <laughs> uh, what am I thinking of Second Samuel? I was, oh, I know what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking Second Chronicles 714. Oh, okay. Uh, like if my people, I know, I, and, and I know right, why, because yeah. uh, two times seven is 14. That's how I remembered it as a kid. Um, <laughs> because I was told as a conservative young adult that if the people of God in America pray, we, God will heal our land. That's Mike what, Pence just was, said something to that effect. Yeah, I'm sure he did. On on his, uh, the funny thing is, although I, I'm sure. <laughs> this is like a tangent on a tangent, but like no one seems to really want to repent. So, yeah. um, Where's that coming from, right? Like he wants mm. to use this verse anyway. Yeah, First Samuel eight. God doesn't want any other king other than himself. He wants us to see him as king. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that properly ordered relationship, you know, directive is actually a really important element in how we analyze and interpret other scriptures. And I'll let Norman take over from here. <laughs> there's there's so many things that you could unpack and both kind of your question and then what everything that Doug's already said. The thing that I would, I would sort of fo- seize upon on some level is that, you know, Martin Luther King once said that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. And I'm, I'm not quite quoting it right, but that to me, I think is, is very interesting in the way that we view politics through the scriptures, because it's very clear from the very beginning yeah. that God has a relationship that he wants to set up between him and his creation. Mm-hmm. And it is one of where he's given man dominion over the earth. And he's even given all sorts of directives as to how those relationships should perform. But he also says very clearly, you know, that I am to be your ruler. God is to be your ruler. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when men set themselves up as wanting to rule over other men, they are taking for themselves an aspect of what God has intended only for himself. When you kind of pose it in those terms from the beginning, you realize that you don't have to appeal merely to just say the typical Romans 13 as being your explanation of the relationship of the Christian and the saint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to look at the whole from the very beginning of what scriptures teaches to the very end and looking at what the destiny of this earth is. Mm. And from the beginning, what we learn is that the archetype of the state is actually Babel, the city of Babel. And it tells the story of how these people organize together and they're going, I mean, it's literally understood in Jewish theology, which we don't always get in certain other commentaries in Christian tradition, that they're essentially going to attack heaven with this tower. (laughs) They're going to try and take it over. And so God scatters them. And that's even a, a merciful act. I mean, an amazingly merciful act from the perspective of, of reading this story. Uh, but Babel being the archetype of the state means confusion and strife. That's what the, the word itself means in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And that is carried throughout scripture and is referenced throughout scripture. And so whenever you see, you know, we always get you know, interested in things like, what do the names in the Bible mean? And we, mm-hmm. and we understand, oh, well, when, when this name is, is said, in the gospels or whatnot, we should be thinking this, Peter is the rock or something. To right. That you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but yet we're totally non-cognizant of the way in which Babylon mm. in particular is referenced in this way. And in the end, in revelation, the destiny of Babylon is destruction. And so what we see from beginning to end in scripture, the idea of the empire, if you will, is bent towards destruction that's the justice and the only justice that it deserves mm. because it has tried to supplant the one true king as a result. And so when you yeah. kind of take those into account, you begin to see all the rest of scripture 
and its references to kings and kingdoms and powers and principalities begin to make sense mm. in a different so, way. I have a couple of questions that kind of follow on from that. So the first one, we'll start with this. So you said about basically the, the state is trying to to take this position really, you know, that is reserved for God as our mm-hmm. sort of leader and king and the state and, and man through that is trying to, to sort of take that position and usurp that power. An argument I hear quite a lot is that libertarian ideas put the individual at the center on the broad spectrum. And like those people will say that it's a a fundamentally selfish kind of ideology. And I've heard that said a lot of times. Do you agree with that? You know, or is that, is that just a risk really of it? Or what way do you see that? Well, people are certainly going to be selfish, whether or not they have a state, whether or not they, whether, you know, to whatever extent that's going to happen. I don't know what's more selfish, me wanting to actually choose how I live my life and letting others do the same or being the kind of person that says, here's how everyone else should live their lives uh, right, because yes. I have the Bible or because yeah. I have this, whatever, like, how is yeah. that any less or more? I'm not saying that it isn't or is selfish. I mean, it can work yeah. both ways. Yeah. Yeah. People but, just kind of frame it in a way that it looks yeah. like, you know, by being a libertarian, you're making it all yeah. about you and it's not about the other people, you know? No, um, no, no. It's all about <laughs> other people. It's all about, yeah. don't tread on others. Like don't tread on me is stated selfishly. One, that's yeah, it, one, that's one way coin. to put it. That's one side of the coin. But if you but think of it logically, side. it's don't tread yeah. on anyone or don't tread on others. It means in the very broad sense, black lives matter, immigrant lives matter, poor people matter. Okay. Mm-hmm. The state should Everybody tread on matters. those. Everybody yeah. matters. And and I, you know, right. We can, we can go down that road of yeah. like, how do you say it the right way so that, right, that it yeah. appeals to people. <laughs> but the idea is that, you know, no person, whatever skin color, location they're from, socioeconomic status, whatever, mm-hmm. shouldn't tread on anyone else. And insofar as we get to a point which they can't do so and their rights are protected, I don't see how that's selfish. That's, yeah. The, yeah. sorry, I get it. You can tell I get irritated when people call this selfish. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, there's nothing more well, selfish than you telling me how I ought to live and telling shoe, me I'm yeah. going to be thrown in a cage. <laughs> Yeah, I, saw, I saw it even last night, I think, on Twitter. Someone was uh, was saying the exact thing to me, you know, that this is a fundamentally selfish ideology, you know. So well, We answer that up, question yeah. in our book, by the way. Yeah, we, we do. Extensively, in fact. In, right. in about 250 <laughs> words. So I wasn't allowed to answer it because I would have taken six pages, but because, yep. you know, I'm so passionate about it. There have been a lot of asterisks in the, yeah. you know, in the, in the words that you... <laughs> I wrote mine in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a key principle here that comes out of scripture that I feel like that a lot of people forget is the idea that there is no privilege of position in Christianity. Yes. You do not gain special moral privilege to do anything just because you wear a uniform or you happen to, you know, have a, a mm. you know, a doctor in front of your name right. or, or a, you know, the honorable or senator or king even. Yeah. Uh, you know, just because you have a title or some measure of education or some, you know, mm. positional authority does not give you special moral authority to do things that other people are not permitted to do normally. Yeah. That's why the state is so bad. The state presumes upon itself, the individuals in it, this goes back to like government with capital G does not exist. Yeah is that people are taking upon themselves special privileges of position to exact violence against other people for certain Mm. types of activities. Yeah. What is more selfish than believing that you are morally better because of your position than other people? Mm. The next thing that I think of, and I was thinking about this earlier when Norman was talking about 1 Samuel 8, uh, is that as a political philosophy that Christians can embrace... I don't know how many of your listeners are non-Christian or they kind of, you know, tap in and they're like, yeah, I don't know about this Christian thing, but I'm into politics or whatever. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that libertarianism is the most friendly to other religions and Mm -hmm. non-religious or anti-religious people than any other political philosophy that a Christian could embrace. So if you are a, if you are a leftist Christian, you require, if you had your way, you would require Mm -hmm. that everybody recycles everything and you know we yeah. switch to green energy or whatever that that doesn't even like whatever like you do all these different things right and if you are a right-leaning person and you had the world your way then everybody would have to be you know 
I can't even think of some off the top of my head. Like we'd have to go to war a lot. We'd have to, you know, all these different like behavioral things. We'd hit, we'd probably go back to prohibition in the States. It'd be all kinds of like moral prohibitions. But libertarianism for Christians to embrace, it's also friendly to others who don't happen to agree. So I think of that relationship between me and God. So if we say Jesus is king, or if we take the Old Testament uh, view that God is the king of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we kind of just analogize uh, analogize that, yeah. so that we're in that position, right? So I'm putting myself under the authority of God. Mm-hmm. Norman puts himself under the authority of God. Josh, you put yourself under the authority of God. But then there's this other guy in the room saying, yeah, I don't believe in God. And we're like, that's okay. Because you know what that means for me to be under the authority of God? Doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. I am not over you. You are not under my authority. And when we try to volley or, or lobby for power, that's what we're doing is that what we just talked about, that selfish, hey, mm-hmm. I think you should be doing what I think you should be doing. Yeah, it really comes down to an element of coercion, really, with, with yeah. any other ideology. And I guess the other question that came to mind when we were talking about, um, and you mentioned there as well, about God being the head and the leader. Um, some people would make the argument that, I guess, whether you agree or not, the times have changed. That was specific time in Israel's history where God was their literal leader. And then some people would say perhaps that God ordained that there be a king in a state, although it wasn't necessarily, it didn't come around the way that he maybe intended it to, that it was his intention for the people, you know, it's not good for people not to have a leader, that sort of thing. So how would you explain that um, this is a kind of continuing ideology? And then perhaps even if people today, like you said, were to maybe humble themselves and say, we want God as our leader, would you say that could be part of God's plan? Or I guess there's a lot of questions sort of rise up from this. How would it work in the yeah. real world? And is this right for our situation? So I don't know who wants to go ahead with that, but. Oh, that's deep. <laughs> what it means to say that God is my leader or God is my ruler does not impose or make incumbent upon someone who is not part of that tradition, who is yeah. outside of the church or whatnot, necessarily anything. We may agree upon other types of laws and, and regulations in order to help make our lives easier together. And we would do that as Christians for love of neighbor at that point. But it doesn't mean that just because I am going to restrict myself in certain ways, behaviorally, in a variety of ways, that I get to impose that on other people. There are still opportunities that we can come together and agree upon certain things that make it easier on us to live together. So we might, you know, we might say, Josh, I, I'm going to work with you. I know that when I'm in your area, I'm going to drive on the left side of the road. Right. As much as as weird as I think that is. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kid. But, uh, but you get the idea, though. And like, we can come up with those ways of agreement that have nothing to do with some type of scriptural principle other than I'm doing it because I want to work together with you. Now, mm-hmm. I, the principle but that's behind the principle is the for love of neighbor, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't require me to go and advocate for some type of theocratic institutional way right. of living. Yes, yeah. In fact, that would in fact if I did that, I would actually be going against that which Christ calls me to. I think that kind of more or less should should kind of answer the question on some level is that I can be underneath the headship of God and recognize God as my ruler while simultaneously realizing that that does not mean mm-hmm. that I get a special privilege in order yeah, to yeah, exact yeah. I guess violence this is against where anybody I, else. I guess this is where I was kind of sort of trying to question in terms of, would you see it as like literally the way Israel was in those days as being mm-hmm. the way the world should be these days with God as kind of the head of a government? You know, that's that's really yeah. where, where what I was getting at there. But okay. I don't know if you want to add to that, Doug, or whether... Yeah, I would say, I mean, there is a tradition, I mean, in the way in which we interpret scripture, like to go back to that a little bit, there is a little bit of that was then, this is now sort of element. Yeah. And as we read that through scripture... What I've really valued from uh, a particular theologian, N.T. Wright, is that what God wanted to do through Israel, he had to do through Jesus because Israel didn't mm. get it done. Whatever, right. that, whatever that is, we can talk about probably another day. Yeah. But we would look at Jesus as fulfilling the obligations of Israel to the world as, as in to be a blessing, the way Abraham's d- descendants were to be a blessing. So mm. we could say, oh, well, 1 Samuel 8 doesn't apply because that was in a particular time. If we didn't already have things like Jesus is Lord being a political statement. And then what did that mean for the early church? What that meant for them was that they were excited about this new movement of God that basically upended the politics of the day. 
And everything that they did that was successful and flourishing, like in Acts 2, when they held all things in common and all of that, that was all because they wanted to and they were participants yeah, in exactly. something new. Yeah new and together. Uh, it was very much, we the people, like I said earlier, yeah. it's very much in that, hey, we're going to do this together. And that's one of the reasons it was successful. It wasn't because they sort of lobbied Rome or, or whatever local governments right. they could. They, mm-hmm. This was a new movement. They didn't need the state. And so everything that we see throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament, as we think of ourselves as Christians, as New Testament people of the book, we see that it's not involving the state. And it's only invoking the name of the state when it's sort of a prudent thing to do so, like when Paul, you know, flashes his Roman citizens card or badge mm-hmm. or whatever he wore. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it was laminated. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> that was that, that's kind of way I see things through. Uh, you know, as you look through the narrative of Scripture, similar to what I said earlier, Scripture is not like a car manual where you like open up to mm-hmm. the index and look up government. What does, you know, what does God have yeah. to say about government? It's a narrative and God chose for the scriptures to be authoritative by telling us many, many narratives that weave a whole story together, which is why you can't just pick one verse and say, ah, here, here's what God says. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think the narrative goes toward, I have no right to say to you, here's the authority that you must, must be. Mm. I can invite people under the authority of God. In fact, that's also, we haven't talked about this yet, but that's also what we do as Christians. We invite people to pledge allegiance to Christ to the power of God, as opposed to the power of the state, as opposed to the power of dominance and violence. So we ask people and we invite people and we pray for people to join God's kingdom. But if God's kingdom isn't powerful enough to compel people to join without the use of the state, it's not really that powerful in the end because it doesn't rely on violence. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I appreciate obviously you guys taking the time out to talk to me tonight. And it's, uh, it's been a great, conversation and we could just go on for a lot longer about all of these issues yeah um, i'm aware we're, we're going to wrap up here but just to finish on i guess um what made you single out this could just be a brief answer from both of you if possible but i don't know if maybe it isn't uh, that kind of a question <laughs> but what made you guys see i guess liberty as one of the fundamental values of the bible where others don't if you know what i mean so your whole kind of political philosophy is the freedom of the individual whereas mm. maybe there's a lot of people that maybe see other different philosophies as being the kind of cornerstone value, if you know what I mean. What what made you guys see liberty as that kind of, this is one of the just absolute key values of our faith and of the Bible? I would actually say that I don't place liberty as one of the core values of scripture. I would say that human flourishing is one mm. of those. And I think that the only way that we can get there is through the freedom to do so. The right. freedom to interact with each other peacefully, the freedom to the freedom from violence from others, whether it's the state or whether it's just literally just other individuals that are nearby. And so there is a strong thread throughout scripture that humans have agency, that they Mm -hmm. have the ability and are responsible for their choices. And when they use those choices in ways that are peaceful and nonviolent, you end up with human flourishing. When they use their choices to coerce others, whether it's individually or collectively, human flourishing can't take place. It can maybe hobble along for a little bit, but overall, in the long run, that does not help the arc bend toward justice, mm-hmm. as uh, Martin Luther King said. So there's the thread of liberty. I'm not sure I would call it a major theme. Maybe Norman would disagree with me. I don't know. We haven't really specifically been asked this question. Right. But I, I see it in terms of human flourishing, and there's a whole lot of other reasons why. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole lot of like biblical and extra biblical evidence that says without individual liberty, you won't get to human flourishing, mm. which is something that is very dominant in scripture. Yeah, like liberty is the enabler of all the other kind of things that come from. Yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, there's that. And and we get that through scripture. I mean, we see that through the through the scriptures that I just said. And we also see that through economic analysis, sociological analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, the more free people are individually and with and among one another, the more humans will flourish. That's just been proven. It's not really, you know, people will try to argue for other reasons. It's just really not up for discussion. Mm. To an extent, I think that the way in which that I would sort of phrase things might sound like I'm disagreeing with Doug. It's not entirely, but I think it would be appropriate to say that if we were trying to come up with some sort of ordinal list of values in the Bible per se, which might be impossible um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, I don't think it's meant to, the Bible isn't really a text that lends Would have given us well. the ordinal list if that's what it was yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the hierarchy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Bible's intent is for us to get to know God. Mm-hmm. But it is not 
comprehensive in the sense that it explains everything there is to know about life. You know, the Bible doesn't give you a handbook in advanced mathematics, as my father-in-law likes to say, you know, the Bible doesn't teach you to bake a cake. But as it stands, I still believe very strongly in the idea that, you know, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I believe very strongly in the idea that when God tells Moses to go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go, that that has something to do with the fact that slavery is wrong, that people do not have the right to own other people Mm. like that. And the fact that we repeatedly mess this up means that it is a little more explicit and explained than certain other topics in the Bible, like, you know, quantum physics or baking a cake per se. So it does not work to have a creation that is given a modicum of separateness, of otherness and agency without Mm -hmm. having some measure of freedom. Therefore, if that is the intent that God has placed upon his creation, that it is supposed to have a relative freedom to himself Mm -hmm. in order to have agency, then for other people to take it upon themselves to restrict other people's liberty Mm -hmm. in that matter is going against the purposes of what God created it to be. Mm. And if that's the case, that our theory of justice, that we're saying that the the universe is bending towards, Mm -hmm. needs to reflect that in some way. And the only way, the only theory of justice that I believe that we can understand from the natural law and that comports with scripture is ultimately that which flows out of libertarian ideas. That's kind of where I'm going to come down on it, is that it's not a measure of, of like ordinalness, but it's in the conflux of things that is that are all throughout scripture, that this is a theme that is underappreciated. And I think that we miss that in the modern world on some level because of the way in which the state permeates our lives. And it's remarkable to me, even now, that not to bash on my minister at church, because I love him to death. He's like a brother to me. But like, you know, he, he gave a sermon this last weekend where he's waxing eloquent on 1 Samuel 8 and the elements of, of empire in the state never come out. Like, how does that happen? And I, I talked to him about it later and he was like, oh, I get it now. And, <laughs> and, and, hopefully, and hopefully that makes a difference and I've given him some, hopefully yeah. some things to chew on. But like, I don't want to criticize him too harshly because he did it. It was a wonderful sermon, but like that's the level of where we're at. And so I think that a measure of what we're trying to do and whether we're being successful or not, even with LCI as an organization, is whether or not we can kind of resist that and teach the church to promote that free society. Mm. And hopefully that's what our book is doing as well and and what people will continue doing as they come to our website and and learn and discuss and talk to their friends and all of that. So yeah. we hope that your you know your listeners will check us out and and hey I'm getting booked too. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. I was just going to say if you want to just remind everyone one more time just the name of your book, where your website is, you know where people can find you guys. I will sort of flash the cover of the book up on the screen here so people can can see. Yeah, just right. I don't know. See, I always see people on YouTube going like right here, and it never really yeah. works out that way. Yeah. But it'll be somewhere somewhere around this. Uh, yeah, we'll just point know. everywhere. All three of us should just point somewhere, right? Here or down here somewhere. <laughs> We're just giving your editor like a really hard job. Uh, well, I am the editor, so I'm giving oh, myself uh. the hard job. But. Um, <laughs> So Oops. yeah, go ahead and, and tell tell everyone where they can find you guys and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, we can be found at libertarianchristians.com. You can actually look up the title of the book, which is Faith Seeking Freedom at faithseekingfreedom.com. So it's an easy one to remember. Faith Seeking Freedom, uh, let's see, the subtitle is Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. It's authored by Norman and me and two other people, Carrie Baldwin and Dick Clark. And we, as a team, spent pretty much this year working really hard at answering these questions, honing them, giving each other feedback. We had some great editorial team, and we are launching the book at 99 cents up to pre-order and maybe just a tad after that during launch week, which we're hoping will be November 10th. It will be available on Kindle, audiobook, eventually, and of course, it'll be a physical soft cover. Did I miss anything? I think I think the last thing is that if somebody can get it into NT Wright's hands, we'd very much appreciate it. We'll make it <laughs> yes, I've got a lot of influence over in these parts, so uh, I'll make it happen. Nice. <laughs> All right, I'll send Let's you five so that they just stack yeah. on his desk. <laughs>
Yeah, and uh, so I assume all your social media stuff is on your website and all that kind of stuff and ways to support yeah. you guys. So everyone check that out. But um, it's been great having you on. I think it's been a, a great conversation. And as I always end up saying, we've barely scratched the surface. And, and usually mm-hmm. and it happens in all the conversations I have with people. But thanks so much again for coming on. And I hope everyone listening is has been blessed by, by the conversation. So yeah. thanks so much. And uh, thanks everyone who's tuned in to listen. So Thanks for watching and we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.